Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. Dr. Aaron Lee, a clinical scientist and vitreoretinal surgeon, joins us today to talk about mining large clinical data sets to unlock the power of big data through machine learning and artificial intelligence. Dr. Aaron Lee is a vitreoretinal surgeon and clinician scientist at the University of Washington. Dr. Lee's research interests focus on the application of big data computing techniques in the fields of ophthalmology. He has created programs to process and analyze big data and has been the first to apply novel visualizations from results from cloud and cluster-based computing environments. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you here and talk about things that are way above my knowledge base, so I'm ready to learn. We're excited to learn about your background and and your interest in this field. I think for the comprehensive ophthalmologists out there, even the subspecialists that are dabbling in research settings, learning about big data, it's intimidating to know how do we use these technologies and resources in our day-to-day life and in our practices. So let's start out with your background and how you got interested and involved in AI research. Please please share that with us. Yeah, it's a completely sort of serendipitous story. I was going through my clinical training and I was watching that transition occur uh, as people were going from paper charts to electronic medical records, they were typing furiously at their keyboards into these really complicated, you know, hex fields. And I knew that all of that information was being stored somewhere in a database, somewhere in the, in the hospital system, deep down in the bowels, there was a computer that was holding all of that information. My technical background came from computational genetics. So I was working in the field of manipulating, you know, these large genomes that we were sequencing at the time and developing computing techniques around that. And so I was very facile at, at manipulating large data sets. And so when, as this transition was occurring, I knew that I could take those skills that I had developed in that field and transition them over to being able to work through clinical databases and drive new insights out of them. And so I was doing that for a little while and I finished my clinical training and I joined the University of Washington as my first faculty position after fellowship. And one of the first things I did when I got here was extract all the imaging from the OCT machines. Every OCT B scan that we had, I had extracted them and put them into like a database. And I sat on it and didn't know what to do with it. There was not much back then that you could do with a whole bunch of images. But one of my friends in radiology, he uh, suggested I try this thing called deep learning. And I had been reading about deep learning in the tech news, and I kind of understood some of the computational techniques. But I thought it was sort of a fad. I didn't think it was going to be real. And so he said, you know, in the radiology space, it seems to be making a big impact. You should really try it. And I said, well, you know, I don't really have one of those fancy graphics cards that you need to do this stuff. And so he said, let me put you in touch with somebody at NVIDIA. And so he put me in touch with an executive there. And I told him about this database I had created. And he said, you know, you should try deep learning. I told him the same thing. And he said, I can fix that problem for you. He overnighted a graphics card, one of their best graphics cards to to me. And in a week, we had trained our first deep learning model. 
our first problem was, you know, can you look, can a deep learning or AI model look at an OCTB scan and determine whether it's normal or it has macular degeneration in it? I was blown away by the results. I knew when I got the first results back from that first deep learning model that this technology was going to transform ophthalmology. And so I pivoted everything I was doing in my research world and all my efforts, and I went, you know, full bore into uh, the deep learning space. And that's really how I sort of got started here. You know, one thing that really strikes me about your story, and we hear this from so many people in medicine, I've mentioned this before, is that you note this aspect of serendipity, which I just love. And I, I love this recurring theme in people who are really passionate about what they're doing is that they were led there in ways that they couldn't have predicted. And when you're engaged and you're focused on your work, and then you collaborate with other people who come into your life, like this radiologist friend, these doors open, you know, you get the overnight of this graphics card that unlocks this whole new research avenue for you. So I just love your story. And I think that resonates with so many people and that now you really know you're in the right place. So you're starting these, these language models, this deep learning for OCTs with macular degeneration. Where do you go next? How do you see the clinical applicability and then bring us up to current day where where we're at this bridge to AI and your current lab space. How does that all progress? Even before you go there, I want to hear the answer to that. But just to help mm -hmm. many readers out there, the language of large language models and deep learning and AI, for people that are not even in this realm, yeah. can you just give the, the elementary school dummies. version of of what is how does how do they compare? What would you sure. tell? What do you tell a person on the street when you say I do some deep learning module or models? How that varies in in the uh, in the buckets of AI, the AI world? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do that. There is a lot of confusion out there, and a lot of the news media use these terms sort of inappropriately, and they mix them, and that causes you know massive confusion uh, to the average person. So AI is really a very ancient field. It's really existed since the dawn of modern computing. And it's really been the study of, you know, how do we get computers to do something intelligent? And that can range from, you know, many, many different families of algorithms that are out there that are considered quote unquote artificial intelligence. So it's been around for hundreds of years. And then there's a subfield within there called machine learning. And in machine learning, those are a set of algorithms that are specifically designed to change their behavior based on evidence, on data that it's been presented towards. And so it, it, it tries to learn a specific behavior. Within machine learning, there's a relatively new field called deep learning. So all of deep learning is machine learning. All of deep learning is AI. And deep learning is a specific type of artificial neural networks that are layered in many, many layers. Uh, so like sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of layers on top of each other. And because of the many different stacks of artificial neurons, that's called quote unquote deep learning from the depth of the models. Large language models is a subfield within deep learning. So all large language models are deep learning and all deep learning is AI. And so all of these are basically subfields within each other. And if you draw a Venn diagram, they're basically circles within circles within circles. Hmm. 
Okay. Okay. That's All very right. helpful. So thank you. It is confusing. And I think the research is progressing so quickly that you don't even get your bearings before there's a new term and there's new studies using different computing technologies. So appreciate the background. And then, so take us up to present day, tell us about your lab and tell us about Bridge to AI. Sure. So our lab has really been on the research front, focusing on developing new deep learning techniques that are tailored for ophthalmology, solving specific problems in ophthalmology. And so we kind of view ourselves as being at the bleeding edge of translating uh, new computational ideas from, you know, reading the papers in uh, deep learning from other computer science fields, and then trying to transition them over into ophthalmology. The Bridge AI project, in my opinion, is one of the most important things uh, that we have been working on. And it's really focused on uh, making deep learning and AI and machine learning accessible to more people. It's, it's not really for us to further our own insights inside of our lab, but really to democratize the availability of data that can unlock new insights for type two diabetes. So what we're doing in our bridge to AI project, which is under this large common fund program that's, you know, it's not from the National Eye Institute. It's, it's actually from the uh, director's office, which is above that. And it spans across all of medicine. And what we're doing uh, in our project is we're focusing on type two diabetes as a model disease. And what we're trying to do is build a data set that is evenly balanced for the different severities of type two diabetes. So we're trying to collect a cohort of about 4,000 people. A thousand of the people will be, will have no diabetes. A thousand will have a pre-diabetes. A thousand will have oral medication controlled diabetes and a thousand will be insulin controlled diabetes. And within that, one of the, you know, really hot topics in deep learning or AI and medicine is the possibility of bias of AI models. And so what we're doing within this 4,000 of each of these groups, what we're going to do is try to get even numbers of different race, race, ethnicity groups. So a thousand of the people of the 4,000 will be white, a thousand black, a thousand Asian American, and a thousand Hispanic. And then within that, within each little bucket that's evenly spaced, we're trying to do one-to-one balancing of males and females, because there's a bias that is that where some of the medical data sets are more heavily female represented compared to male. And so we want to try and balance both biologic sex as well as race, ethnicity across type two diabetes as a disease. With that data set that you've collected then, so you've got 4,000 equal representation from kind of four very common ethnic groups. And you're going to train and teach these deep learning models to recognize patterns of diabetic retinopathy or, or what is, what's the goal? Where do you go from there? It's a great question. And this is a question that people often get confused about. This is actually a bridge to AI, meaning that we are building the bridge for other people to do AI work. In, a, in this project, what we're doing is we're collecting a multimodal data set of, you know, not just retinal imaging, but EKGs, environmental sensors, activity monitoring, continuous glucose monitoring. And we're going to just uh, release it to the public and allow other people, give them the tools to do AI work 
and explore different hypotheses. So the idea of this data set is really to be the, uh, the foundation on which many different hypotheses could be generated and tested using this data set. It's sort of similar to the UK Biobank uh, effort where they've created a biobank of medical information and data that other people have then used to explore different medical hypotheses. Okay, so that makes sense. So it's this multimodal atlas that you're creating, and then that is the bridge to AI so other people can do work with that. Help me understand what types of questions one could ask with the data set once you've created it. Sure. So one possible question that people could answer is looking at a retinal photograph and understanding different dynamics that people might have from the heart. Because we're both collecting 12 lead EKGs, as well as OCT, OCTA, color fundus photos in these, in these 4,000, people could train a model that could predict, you know, different dynamics of the QRS complex from a retinal photograph or from an OCT B-scan. The, the idea is then, you know, we can take, you know, the different facets of the multimodal data that we are collecting and ideally use the eye as a window to the rest of the human body to understand, you know, the renal function or to understand, you know, the health of the heart or to understand the insulin resistance inside of the body. You know, these are all things that we didn't think were possible before the age of AI. And there's more and more papers coming out now that seem to hint that the health of the retina is extremely indicative of many other facets of the health in the human body. That's fascinating. I have two questions. So one, are there data that tell us that these questions are answerable with retinal imaging. Like we know there's data showing that retinal imaging can predict Alzheimer's risk factor and other neurodegenerative risk factors. Are, are there initial data that I, I haven't heard of these papers that show we can link retinal imaging findings with cardiac function, renal function, et cetera? And then second question, are 4,000 patients enough to answer these really big questions? Both are excellent questions. So yes, there have been hints that you can use you know, for example, the UK Biobank data set uh, has been used as a way uh, to show that you can predict GFR from a color fundus photo. So there, that has, there's been papers about that. There have been papers about predicting the hemoglobin A1C from a retinal photograph or the hematocrit levels of a human being and predicting anemia just from a, a color fundus photograph. So there have been many papers that have sort of shown first proof of concepts using the UK Biobank data. And some of these models and ideas have matured to the point where they are being used commercially outside of the US in different parts of the world. There are companies and startups that have added these things on as a part of a generic health checkup where at a, a primary care doctor, they will get a retinal photograph and it will tell you the risk of having a stroke uh, in the next couple of years or, or your kidney function without getting your blood drawn. So these are all things that are occurring in other parts of the world. And they're all forming because of these data sets that are becoming more available for people. And so what we're hoping is that this high quality data set that we're collecting will allow other people to do it. It is a question I get asked often, you know, is 4,000 enough to do all these amazing things? The unfortunate answer is that sometimes we don't know ahead of time. Deep learning is a, a method that is very data hungry. 
it requires lots and lots of data in order to train sophisticated models, especially when the association you're looking for uh, may be very weak. You know, if it's a very difficult task to do, then you need more and more data. What we're hoping and what we've sort of, why we chose the number 4,000 is that there are more and more methods that are coming out in the deep learning space that is driving down the number that you need to do these things. The old rule of thumb used to be that you need about a thousand independent samples per class of interest. So if you have four different classes, then you would need about 4,000 people. And that's one of the reasons why we ended up at the number 4,000 because we have those four different severity levels of diabetes. But nowadays, there are techniques that allow you to use a data as small as 200 or 300 per class of interest to train a deep learning model that actually does generalize to, to new data. So there are more and more techniques. The field of AI is accelerating and growing. And so we hope that you know this data set will allow many people to mine it for many years to come. For many ophthalmologists who are familiar with the iris registry and mining that data has been something is growing, you see it in the literature and in people's interests. Share with us from your perspective then, because you've used, you know, I've, I've, in this space, we understand size matters, the, the, the mining or the language you're putting together to look for the data matters. For people reading these articles coming out, and obviously you're looking at them going, this is a good one and this maybe is not, but you talk about these deep learning modules around the world, models around the world. Share with us your perspective on the things that a comprehensive ophthalmologist can look for when they see these things, how to interpret a good article on deep learning versus one that should make us raise our eyebrow. Because certainly in all of these, I think well, even the IRIS registry, some people look at it and think, you know, in this area, garbage in is garbage out. Or in this area, the value of this can, I can use in my practice. But how does someone that doesn't have your expertise understand this ever-expanding scope of research? Sure. It's, you know, nothing is really that new under the sun. So all these new models, all these new techniques, they all have fancy terms. But the old ideas are still very much valid. So... If you have a new fancy statistical model that predicts something, you know, your heart risk score or your risk of getting glaucoma or, or something like that, almost always uh, those risk calculators need to be validated in an external population. Ideally, one that is very different or more diverse uh, than the population that the model was developed on. And that same principle holds true with deep learning and AI. The papers that I find most convincing are the ones where they went to a different continent and they gathered new data prospectively, ideally, and they showed that in a blinded fashion that the model was actually still able to do the tasks that it was trained to do. And so that external validation or in machine learning, an external held out test set is extraordinarily important for understanding, is the model cheating? Is it actually doing what we hope it to do? That kind of rigor is even more important when it comes to these very large models. So that's something that I very much look for. When it comes to papers that have to do with large EHR data sets like the IRIS registry, 
A lot of it has to depend on, in my opinion, uh, the quality of the data that was used to do the analytics inside of that paper. Yes, it's true that the IRIS registry has noise inside of it. I don't think anybody would argue that fact, but there are certain things inside of the IRIS registry that you can hang your hat on, so to speak. For example, we know that in EHR data sets that the billing codes are probably pretty accurate because otherwise people would not get paid. And so they probably have an incentive to make sure that data is of high quality. And so if somebody is looking at the frequency of intravitreal injections, for instance, in uh, age-related macular degeneration, you can be relatively certain that those data points are probably real and accurate, and you can do analytics on top of it to understand some new association. So going forward, the goal for Bridge to AI data set, you're working on creating it now. You create this beautiful image-based data set with 4,000 patients. It's ethical and equitable, a good research that really kind of has this comprehensive ophthalmology patient population, then then that data bank is available to researchers globally who can ask questions and use it to test models. So you ask a question, you test the model on your data set. The model looks like it works. It's pretty, say like your example of GFR, say we find some retinal finding that can predict GFR with X accuracy. Is the next step then to go to something like the Irish Registry to then, is that an external source that you can then test it on? Or then do you go back to your home and test it on your patients? Or or what's the, how do you integrate this data set with what already exists in terms of big data? One of the caveats with the Iris Registry is that it does not have very much imaging inside of it. Right. And so you would not be able to test this kind of deep learning model that we're talking about inside of the Iris Registry as it exists today. And so what I would imagine uh, somebody would be able to do is use our data set and, you know, the UK Biobank to train very sophisticated, very powerful deep learning models, and then go to their home institution or partner with somebody else and test it externally on their patient population and be able to publish papers as well as hopefully make it through regulatory approval uh, so that these models can actually start to impact people's health. That's really the goal and the dream of all the people working in this space is that all this blood, sweat and tears that we're putting into the foundations of data science would ultimately accelerate and improve people's health. It's fascinating to think about you know, we've certainly live in an era where you can put your head in a machine and it gives you a refraction, but it's mm-hmm. phenomenal to think about the future of where this goes in terms of, you know, doing retinal imaging, not just for diabetic retinopathy management, but systemic health care. And I just, the implications and what your efforts are for, you know, greater health of patients is, is quite uh, meaningful. So I just appreciate you sharing. Yeah, I love it. I want to switch gears if you don't mind and ask you a personal question. Because I learned that your partner in the lab, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your your co-PI is your wife. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So Cecilia is my wife, and we collaborate on many, many research projects together. We've built our careers together, really. I love that so much. And if you don't mind, I'd love to hear what it's like working with your spouse, 
building a lab with your spouse. We There's a few ophthalmology power couples that I can think of, but I love that, that you are an ophthalmology power couple working in the lab together. Yeah, it's really a, a passion of ours. It has to be a passion because literally we can't escape each other and we can't escape work. <laughs> we talk about work, you know, from the moment we get up all the way to the moment we go to sleep. It's an amazing synergistic career that we've been able to build because of that. You know, a, a sort of a concrete example uh, is the Bridge to AI application that we put in. That was an extraordinarily competitive process. When we went to the first town hall, there were maybe 800, 900 people on Zoom listening and thinking about putting it in an application for this Bridge to AI program. Cecilia and I wrote a 750-page application in two months to submit. And we were one of the four data generation projects that were ultimately funded. And so yeah, that wouldn't have been able, neither one of us would have been able to do that alone. And it was only because we work together and we collaborate and we're married and we love each other that we were able to do all these things. So are, do you have rules on when you don't talk about AI at home? <laughs> <laughs> I get home and my wife has, you know, has certain times where she's okay, <laughs> no turn off your texting and your page or this is home. No, it's incredible to think of that synergy on various levels of your life and the phenomenal productivity that you've had I through it. I love it. I love it. I have one from a personal side too. Certainly in, in, you know, in the world of AI now, people are using it to paint pictures and write poetry while certainly humans are doing a number of unpaid labor jobs that are underpaid labor job. No, no one wants to do, but what is your relationship? reflection on the balance of AI outside of ophthalmology, outside of science, and how do we balance this well? How do we use it well and maintain our residents' ability to write manuscripts themselves? Or just reflect on how you encourage people around you in utilizing AI to complement their lives and not take away from things that we want to encourage development in. I want to answer this question by reflecting on where we are as human society, as AI is becoming a, a new technology. I think, you know, the news media has really hyped up AI and deep learning tremendously since about 2016. So, you know, they started talking about self-driving cars. They started talking about, you know, how AI is going to replace all of our jobs. There were all these articles. And if anything, that volume of news uh, articles have been just growing and growing and growing. But the average person, the average American could not actually access AI, right? They couldn't actually uh, interface and interact with an AI model. What was sort of a crystallizing moment, I think, for society was when ChatGPT became a thing. Uh, that OpenAI made it available for the human public to start to actually directly interact with a deep learning model and understand, you know, the limitations and understand what was hype and what was, what was, was not hype. When that moment occurred, there were two things that could have happened. People could have either walked away supremely disappointed, right? Like all the hype that had been building around AI and deep learning, once they interacted with that large language model that ChatGPT had released, they could have walked away from that saying, well, this is no better than, you know, the old NLP algorithms where they just repeated themselves over and over and over. There was no real creativity behind it. That didn't happen. That disappointment didn't happen. People walked away, if anything, from that first experience impressed and excited. And so if anything, that, that put more fuel to the fire of expectations. And so I think more and more people are now thinking that this technology is here to stay and they're thinking about ways 
to integrate it into their lives where it will augment and do the things that they don't really want to do themselves. When I think about how these large language models might be used in the clinical space, I would love a reality where ophthalmologists no longer need to sit at the keyboard and type things and turn have their backs towards the slit lamp and the patient. But instead, they could be directly talking to the patient, explaining the clinical findings, saying that, you know, they have like a mild cataract in the right eye as they're, as they're looking with the slit lamp. And a large language model is listening to that conversation, transposing it into the lens exam of the right eye and putting one plus NS there. And so doing that translation work, you know, being sort of like a super scribe that uses, you know, the latest AI medical uh, large language model intelligence to make the doctor patient relationship even stronger. Because I think in this era of electronic medical records, we've kind of taken away from that. We've become data slaves uh, at the keyboard at the cost of our interaction with our patients. And so I would love for that interaction to be radically transformed using AI in the future. Well wow. said. Yeah, agree. Aaron, this is really fantastic, deeply informative, lots of deep learning happening here. So really, thank you so much for being with us and congratulations on all of your work. We're very excited to see what comes from Bridge to AI and hope you talk to you again soon. All right, well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 